Is Temple Cats on the list of medical schools you would love to apply to? Do you know what it takes to get in? Well, plug in your earbuds and listen to this interview with the Associate Dean of Admissions to find out how to get accepted to Temple Cats School of Medicine. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 476th episode of Mission Straight Talk. Thanks for tuning in. The medical school application process is complex. Think of it like a structure that you're building with many elements and floors. And like any building, it requires a strong foundation. Except its free four-part video course, which requires less than half an hour to complete, lays out the foundation of an outstanding medical school application. Watch it today at medschoolessentials.com. Our special guest today is Dr. Jacob Offberg, Associate Dean for Admissions at Temple University, Lewis Katz School of Medicine, and Director of the Emergency Medicine Residency Program. He completed his bachelor's degree at the University of Pennsylvania. Then he earned his MD at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine and did his residency in emergency medicine at the Medical College of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He returned to Temple University's Katz School after completing his residency and has since become Associate Dean of Admissions Interim Assistant Dean of Career Advising, a Professor of Emergency Medicine, and an Emergency Medicine Residency Program Director. I'd say he's a little bit busy, so I'm really appreciative of your time. Welcome, Dean Uffberg, to Admission Straight Talk. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. My pleasure. Now, can you give us an overview of Temple Katz's approach to medical education, focusing on its more distinctive aspects? Sure. Um, at Temple, the uh, we teach basic science and clinical medicine kind of interwoven together uh, with our clinical faculty and our basic science faculty integrated together into our pre-clerkship curriculum over the first year and three quarters or so uh, so that that can provide some clinical perspective for the basic science work that the students are learning we do a good deal of small group and and case-based learning and we have a strong focus on integrating the learning of safety, quality, uh, social and structural determinants of health, disparities in health and medical ethics. We have a wonderful simulation center, a wonderful uh, simulation group here. So we use simulation and standardized patients quite a bit in the pre-clerkship years for clinical correlation and we have a curriculum that allows for a lot of early and frequent clinical experience. We have two great campuses, one here in North Philadelphia and one in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania at the St. Luke's University Health System. Um, and they both provide really wonderful uh, clinical learning opportunities for the students. And, and one of the great things is that the students based on each campus have an opportunity to cross over from one campus to the other for some of their clinical learning opportunities over the years. And is there, is one campus, Philadelphia or Bethlehem, bigger than the other? And there is, is there a different focus in the, in the two different campuses? Uh, I wouldn't say that there's a different focus. We really are, are very well aligned in, in how we teach, what we teach, and, and the experiences that the students have. There is a size difference. Um, the campus here uh, in North Philadelphia, where I'm sitting now, 
has 180 students uh, per year and there are 40 students per year at the St. Luke's campus and each offers unique benefits. I think the students up here, you know, love the urban setting, you know, they like living in Philadelphia. Uh, the students down on the St. Luke's campus, you know, love living in a slightly kind of more relaxed space. They have a, a smaller learning group and obviously, you know, that, that smaller 40 person class provides that opportunity to really kind of uh, mesh together and, and kind of grow together over the years. Right. Yeah. I mean, Bethlehem is, is a small, much smaller city than Philadelphia. Um, you know, so there's more rural medicine opportunities there. Is that correct or not really? Um, that is correct. St. Luke's has, has a number of hospitals. Bethlehem is not, I mean, compared to Philadelphia, it's small, but it's not really small. I mean, yeah. the downtown Bethlehem Easton area is a, a pretty sizable, you know, place. And, and so uh, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't call it small but yeah it's a there's a different feel to the area for sure and and i think that the students really appreciate that and and st luke's has a number of different clinical learning opportunities you know over the years the students can rotate in various uh settings with them or cross over here and our students do the same from the north philadelphia campus down to the st luke's campus got it now, one of the things that caught my eye when I was preparing for our call today was the narrative medicine program. Sure. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of talk about narrative medicine in some medical schools, but you actually have a program. Can you can you describe that? And is that for all students or is it kind of an elective thing for students who are more interested? Um, so any student has an opportunity to participate in narrative medicine. Narrative medicine is, you know, as, as you know, it, it's kind of a newer Thing, and it really kind of lives at the intersection of the science of medicine and the humanities and, and really, you know, it's about storytelling. It's, yeah. it's listening to patients and their families, observing kind of in the medical space and then telling, telling those stories, for telling patient stories, telling healthcare providers stories. Um, and really kind of changing the lens that people use to look at healthcare, and 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 it really I think provides a, a different outlook a more empathetic kind of view of the patient experience and it's a really neat program it was started here uh, a number of years ago when the dean at that time brought a, a gentleman named Mike Vitez who was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist up here to Temple to, to start the program. And over the years, it's been so popular and so successful and it's really grown. They have a number of faculty. And so some students participate, there's, you know, opportunities and workshops, but there's also, you know, story slams where people can just kind of get together and tell stories. And, and it's really amazing. And, and it has over the years grown to now where we have a certificate program. It's a 12 credit program in narrative medicine. And there's even talk of, of growing that into a master's program wow. eventually. And, and that's now run by one of my colleagues in the emergency department, uh, Naomi Rosenberg, who, who really is uh, fantastic. And she, she and Mike and Dr. Doug Reifler work together. It's really uh, something that the students enjoy a lot. Well, you, I mean, certainly emergency room physicians, they see it all. <laughs> you must have stories <laughs> up the kazoos. Um, my, I have an elderly mother. She was recently in the hospital. And like most people in their 90s, she has an interesting life story. And she, the doctor came by and just sat with her for about half an hour listening to her story. Yeah, it's so, it's so rare 
in the practice of medicine now to have that kind of time to sit down in a, in a busy emergency room. But, you know, it's something that, that my residents love and, and they do it in different forms. It's writing, it's storytelling, you know, people have done photo essays and, and really interesting stuff that, that's been for local consumption and stuff that, you know, Naomi wrote a, an amazing piece in the New York Times about how to tell a mother that her child had passed away. And, and every time I read it, like tears, it's, uh, you know, it's so well written and it's, it's really kind of, it, it lets you step back and, and think about the people and not the science. Right. Right. What would you like listeners to know about Temple Cats that many applicants just don't realize? I'm going to guess the narrative medicine program is, is one side of it, or are there any myths that you would like to dispel about the program? Yeah, I don't know that there's any myths, uh, at least none that anybody have, have told me. <laughs> Maybe okay. there are, and I, and I just don't know about them. Um, but but one of the things that I think that, that it's worth knowing is that uh, Temple really prides itself on a, a culture of service. And, and we place a lot of emphasis on attracting, you know, applicants, future physicians who are, who are interested in caring for underserved communities. And, and so we're especially committed to our local communities around our healthcare systems. And, and we feel really, you know, privileged to be uh, a part of that community and a part of the kind of everyday life uh, of the community. And so one neat thing uh, worth mentioning is this past application cycle, we we extended that relationship to involve our community actually in our med school admissions process. And so kind of the thought process is that our students are providing care to our local community and to our to our patients. And so um, those patients, like choosing your doctor, you know, those people should have a say in who's taking care of them. And so this was really pushed, interestingly, by a group of students here, our Student Diversity Committee, and operationalized by kind of a collaboration between uh, that committee and a particular student named Randy Lyde, who was a student that just graduated a week or two ago, who was the president of the Student Diversity Council um, and his group. And, you know, we worked together to put together, to, to, and with our Center for Urban Bioethics to, to you know, identify a number of people who live and work in the community that, that, that could be a, a part of our interview day. Um, and so we have interviews with our with community members um, here at the medical school and the community members, you know, fill out evaluations. There's a community member that's a voting member of our admissions committee. Wow. And they've really become an, uh, just over the one year we've been doing this, an amazing part of our admissions process and in you know speaking to applicants surveying applicants I should say over the year we found that applicants really appreciate you know that we involve the community in the process number one and I think that it really um, allows them to see kind of the connection that we feel to our community and, and where our values are as a medical school so you know, it's been it's been a great year. You know, we're looking we're definitely going to continue it on, and and it's gone really well. Probably the last kind of fun fact, you know, since we we talked about the narrative medicine program, and um, we have a number of dual degree programs here, but one that's that's unique is is we offer a master's in urban bioethics, 
um, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the only bioethics master's program out there that's focused specifically on health equity. And they really focus on understanding and analyzing like ethics, you know, values and, and value conflicts in areas of density, diversity, and disparity, you know, which certainly our North Philadelphia campus um, is a part of. So um, students can do that, you know, within the four years of medical school, and it's been very popular. A, a large number of students each in each class are, are co-kind of gaining their master's in urban bioethics alongside their medical degree. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I'd like to go back to the community involvement in, in admissions for a second. Sure. Are they, I'm going to guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the voting members of the committee or the people who are interviewing students, whether they're community members or non-community members, are, are trained somehow, right? They're, they're taught the criteria that the school uses. Is that true of the community members as well? Absolutely. You know, we identified with the help of, of uh, Dr. Kathy Reeves, who who runs our Center for Urban Bioethics. She is part of something called the North Philadelphia Coalition, which is a kind of umbrella group that includes a, a number of nonprofits in the area and, and community organizations. And she helped us identify some people that she thought that are, you know, people who live and work in the community who she thought would be great um, additions to our, you know, crew of interviewers. and. And then they came in and, and we, um, the admissions office and the student diversity committee worked together to build a framework around it and, you know, help to train them. And, and the student diversity committee students acted as students and we did, you know, practice interviews and, and training. Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly something that we'll keep refining. We just kind of had our end of year debrief um, with our community interviewers and talked about ways to enhance what we're doing for the coming year. So it's it's something that I think worked out fabulously, but certainly we look to to keep growing on it over the coming years. Sounds fascinating. This this is one I've never heard of. Okay. So um, fascinating. Now let's get to the application itself. Cat School of Medicine Secondary has five questions. Do you have any plans to change those questions during the upcoming cycle? And is the secondary automatic? So no and yes. No, okay. uh, no, we don't plan to change the secondary for the coming year. We certainly like lots of schools. There are tons of questions that we would love to ask, but obviously, you know, we feel the burden on the students applying. We know we're not the only school they're applying to, and we know that they're writing lots of essays. And so we decided to, to not change um, for this year and and yes to the automatic question when an application becomes complete we do send out a secondary application okay great and what do you hope to learn from the secondary that you don't glean from the primary so the biggest piece of that you know we people love to use the term fit but you know we really are are looking for fit and, and admission fit why is someone specifically interested in temple how do their, you know, life experiences and attributes and accomplishments and perspective make this the right school for them and why we should want them in our medical school. So that, that is a huge piece of it. Obviously, there's informational things, you know, uh, we want to know some perspective on what they're going to be doing for the coming 
coming year because yeah. the application is all passed. So there, you know, there are questions that are informational like that. But but I think the largest portion of that is is trying to find that fit. Okay, and what are some of the common mistakes that you see applicants make both in the MCAS and in the secondary application to Temple? Yeah, you've probably heard this one before, but typos, typos, typos. <laughs> Certainly anyone can have a mistake, but a, but an application littered with typos kind of speaks to either a lack of interest in what they're doing or a lack of interest in becoming a physician or, or I guess a lack of interest in Temple specifically. So, so just kind of a careful, you know, review and putting your stuff in Microsoft Word and spell checking it or pages or whatever platform you like. Um, that's certainly, you know, one, one mistake that we see people make. Another is, is especially in that secondary application, not really framing their interest in, in our school yeah. in particular. I mean, we get that they're writing a lot of essays. I, I mean, I have two kids that just went through the college application process and they're like, how do I repurpose this essay to, you know, to be able to use for this school, but but really that copy paste and and kind of feeling like they don't know, they haven't done their homework on our school and and haven't taken the time to really kind of speak to their fit for us. Other other issues, uh, certainly people tend to, you know, in personal statements and essays, they they tend to talk about experiences that they've had in the healthcare arena. And students, I think applicants have to be careful about how they frame those experiences because they can be framed sometimes in a way that seems to lack perspective taking on the patient's experience or seem to lack empathy for the patient or their story or seem to speak to wanting to be a doctor because of all the terrible things that they saw, you know, while lacking empathy for other doctors in a clinic. And, and so I, I think, you know, that's a piece. And then the last, the last thing is, is probably just that kind of attention to detail. I know for our application and probably for many others, it's, it's kind of a self-driven process. You know, here's the documents, here's a checklist, you know, make sure that these documents come in and just not checking back to make sure that that document got submitted, not checking back to make sure their application's complete and seeing, you know, those emails, you know, five, six months into interview season saying, hey, I never heard from you. And then you see that the application's just not complete um, because they haven't provided some of the things that have been asked for. So that's that's probably the other mistake, although it's not frequent that I do see. Right. Thank you. I want to go back to for a second to the bit about showing fit. There's there's just such a big difference between adapting uh, an essay and copying and pasting it. Uh, this is something I've been talking about for years. You can adapt an essay for another school, but that means you have to focus on that individual school. And actually, I always recommend that applicants do the secondaries one at a time, one school at a time. Don't do all the COVID essays for different schools and all the, I don't know, what are the uh, leadership essays or accomplishment essays or uh, diversity essays all at one time. Do it one school at a time so you can focus on that individual school. And all I think right. that's that's fantastic advice. And, and really, I think before sitting down, yeah. you know, you got to learn about the school. Really, really go through it and, and do your learning. 
So, yeah, you know, I, like that's great advice. I didn't. I mean, the narrative medicine program at CATS, it's not unique, but it is distinctive. So yeah. that would be one way if somebody was interested in, in, in applying to Temple. And also if they have a love of writing or love of story that they could show fit. Right. Absolutely. Let's move on in the application process. Now, Temple requires the Casper and the Duet assessments. What is the role of each of them and why do you want both? Yeah, so, um, you know, one one of those questions is easier to answer than the other. Okay. Um, you know, this <laughs> past really year, we, we, did, we, we did require both, both Duet and Casper, um, but, but I will say this was our first year with Duet. I mentioned fit earlier, and it's something that we're very attached to, the idea of, of fit here, because I think, you know, for a student to, to really kind of be their best self, they need to be at the right school for them, and we need to be the right school for them. And so that idea of fit is important to us. And Duet really was designed around the idea of trying to find fit in, you know, in various areas. And so uh, we required it, but I will kind of let the secret out that we required it with the intention of not using it in our admissions process for the first year. We, we tend to be pretty deliberate about what we do and, and how we do it. And so the idea was to kind of get the duet scores, get to the end of the cycle, and then sit down and do our research on whether we thought it was additive. To, reverse. To yeah. And it's the same thing we did when we started using Casper. Um, and we have decided that we will not be requiring duet again in the next cycle not because i think that there's anything wrong with it because i, I do think the the people at altus that that built duet um and and casper are incredibly bright thoughtful people but we found that it was kind of duplicative with other information that that we particularly at temple were getting and so um just you know, in, in making the ask that a student sit down and, and provide part of their time and maybe some money, I can't remember. I don't mm. believe Duet had additive cost on top of Casper, but in asking them to give their time, we wanted to be sure that, that it makes sense. And, and so right now um, we've kind of made the decision that it doesn't make sense for us to go forward with Duet into next year. Okay. Now, um, Casper we've used for years, we've found it very helpful. And we found that uh, it does seem to correlate with what we're finding on our interview day. You know, what our, what our interviewers are, are kind of thinking of an applicant as they fill out their evaluation. And so that makes sense for us to use Casper as a screening tool up front. We do use it, you know, a little bit otherwise, but we have found it to be useful. And, and so that's why we will continue to require Casper at this time. Is its role more significant in determining who receives an interview invitation, or is it more significant in the final acceptance decision or both? A little bit both, but certainly we use it more kind of on the front end as part of our holistic screening process. You know, there's a million things, as you know, that go into kind of holistic review of an application. But Casper has been, a, you know, a valuable piece of that on the screening front end. On the on the back end, you know, once a, a, an applicant has come to have an interview with us, um, we don't tend to, to use it as much. But I do find that our committee tends to ask about it 
at times when there is discrepancy between the interviewers and we're, you know, we're talking about an applicant and things are not, you know, sometimes it's easy and smooth. Everybody thinks the same thing. And sometimes there's more discussion. And when there are some of those discrepancies, sometimes we'll just kind of peek back at the Casper and, and use that as, again, part of that big picture of, of holistic, you know, review. Great. Thank you. Streamline your med school applications with Interfolio. Apply to multiple schools at once, request secure letters of recommendation, and more. Sign up at interfolio.com backslash accepted with the code accepted22 for 10% off. That's interfolio.com backslash accepted. And now let's go back to the interview. What process does an application go through at CAD once it's complete in terms of determining who gets the interview and then after the interview? Sure. So, you know, an application gets submitted, you know, as we said, it becomes complete once the secondary comes in. Uh, and then it goes into a screening portal in our admissions software platform. And we have a, a team of screeners, which is a number of our admissions committee members who have been on the committee for quite a long time and have a good perspective on, on what we are looking for and what our committee wants. And so they get screened by those admission screeners. Um, the screeners uh, make a recommendation as to whether we should invite that person for an interview. Um, if the recommendation is made for interview, then the person will get an interview invitation and schedule an interview day with us. Hopefully, hopefully they'll say yes to us. When they come for the interview day, the day starts with kind of an informational session where they learn a little bit more about the school, the curriculum, kind of some of the details, talk a little bit about things like financial aid, those, those types of things. They have a tour, which has more recently been a virtual tour, but yeah. a meet and greet with the students, which you, you know, traditionally was over lunch, but uh, now it's BYO, I guess. <laughs> um, and then they have their three interviews. So we have three different kinds of interviews. The the one, the first one we call kind of the the primary interview, and that's always done by a member, an actual sitting member of the admissions committee, um, and that is done by someone who not only is, is a member of the admissions committee, but has the full applicant file. They, you know, they see the letters of recommendation and the, you know, the AMCAS application and the secondary and, and all those other things. The second interview is what we call the blind interview, which, you know, won't surprise you now when I describe it, but that that is a, a faculty member and we have a, a small group of blinded interviewers as well that have been interviewing for us for a long time among the faculty. And that person has the applicant's name. So yeah, no access to MCAT grades, essays, nothing, anything like that. Nothing, just their name. And so uh, that is the second interview. And then the third interview is the community member interview. Um, and those are panel interviews. There are three applicants with one community member. Um, and it's a it's a group interview. And then at the end of the interview day, each of the interviewers kind of fills out a like a templated evaluation form, you know, gives their comments, their recommendations. And then as soon as all three of those are complete and submitted into the system, they appear on our admissions committee report and we meet together as a committee, you know, once a week to adjudicate, you know, all the uh, all the applicants who have interviewed 
um, up to that time. And so that can be lively sometimes. Sometimes it's sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. But uh, we have a, a really just you know tremendous um, group. Our admissions committee. They're really uh, quite wonderful. And and so even though. You know, we don't always agree. We're always kind and collaborative with each other. And, and so the committee then makes a, a recommendation as far as whether they believe that the candidate is acceptable, whether they should be placed on what we call the continuing candidates list or kind of declined uh, acceptance. And then there is uh, a smaller subcommittee of that admissions committee that then kind of does the enrollment management you know, do we have enough? Do we have too many? You know, um, how do we work the continuing candidates list? And and we tend to only to to kind of make our enrollment management work. We only offer out acceptances at just a couple discrete time points throughout the year to avoid, for instance, our admissions committee accepting the first 400 students that we uh, that, that we interview because obviously most people we interview are really lovely and wonderful and then ending up with no with not only an overfilled class but no space to even have room to consider the applicants that come throughout the year so we we kind of pause um, and do that at discrete intervals throughout the year to make sure that everyone that interviews with us whether it's in September or in March has has a you know a reasonable chance to be accepted into the school great thank you thank you for the detailed answer one, one question I have about the, the group interview, do the, do the evaluators of the group interview, are they ranking the participants in the interview or are they individually uh, assessed? Individually assessed. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just, I think to, to rank people one, two, three, yeah. kind of would create an issue um, because you could have three fabulous people that exactly. three people that they don't exactly. like any of them. Um, so I, I think, you know, just doing it um, kind of with each applicant as their own. Uh, but certainly, um, I think having three applicants in there together with the community interviewer offers an interesting look at kind of interpersonal and communication skills, how people share the stage with each other. Um, and it does offer kind of a unique um, kind of piece of, of that uh, admissions kind of profile. But no MMIs, right? Uh, no, we do not do MMIs. Do MMIs. Okay. And are you planning for in-person or remote interviews for this upcoming cycle? That's the question. <laughs> it's, I don't know if I'm alone, but it's the question that I can't answer. Okay. Okay. Um, we, we very much do feel that in-person really gives the best information to us and to the applicants as far as choosing a school. However, obviously, you know, we see the benefits in time, cost, trouble that virtual interviews offer. You know, if I had my choice, I, I think I would like to go back to in-person interviews, um, but uh, we have not come to a decision. I think uh, COVID may kind of help make that decision for us. So we'll see, we'll see how things go. Okay. Now, it seems from your website that uh, Temple is pretty open regarding updates at different stages in the admissions process. Do you have any preference in terms of, you know, before interview, after interview, if waitlisted, or I think you called it the continuing consideration list, is that, did I get that right? Um, continuing of, candidates. Continuing but... candidates, okay. Um, I knew it started with a C. Did, did um, any preference for updates? 
Um, no, we, I, I think we, we welcome all information at all, at all time points throughout the process. I think certainly, you know, an important place is for students who are placed on the continuing candidates list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that that updates can be very helpful uh, for them. I'm going to give unsolicited advice, uh, you know, and say to, to the students out there and say, treat these like your essays from medical school. You know, poorly constructed, poorly, you know, capitalized, punctuationless text-like email is not nearly as well received as a, you know, clear, concise update email. But we, but we welcome that information really at any time point along the way. But I will say that sometimes, you know, if there's multiple things that a, you know, student has a paper published and they have another one that they think is going to hit press in another week, like one well-crafted update may be better than eight little updates over the course of two <laughs> weeks just from the the standpoint of uh, you know kind of being able to use that information also showing judgment in terms of consideration of your time sure i think that it's really important if i could again editorialize for a minute here that really every interaction with the school is an indication of your judgment, your communications abilities, et cetera. It's not, it's not limited just to the application or even to your email updates. It's really every single interaction, whether it's with the janitor or the receptionist or the, inter the community interviewer or, this, or the academic dean, it doesn't matter. It's all a reflection of the candidate and, and the candidacy. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, I counsel a lot of medical students who are going into my specialty and I, and I tell them all the time, like, it's a job interview from, from the first email to, you know, your final decision. Um, and, you know, medical school is probably no different there. Right. All right. Let's go back to CATS. I'll get off my soapbox. What was CATS's application th this year compared to the 2021 cycle and the 2019-20 cycle? And was that the cycle when COVID hit and the cycle when it was in full full yeah. bloom and then this year so i mean in general over the years we've really kind of tracked with national trends in in all ways you know we kind of grew steadily over the years and then um had a big spike for that 2021 entering class like all medical schools did yeah. i think i can't remember the exact numbers but i think the national numbers were like 15 Eight. or 20 percent spike. I remember 18 percent, so we're, we're pretty yeah. close. <laughs> yeah, and we, and we were approximately the same. We spiked about the same as the national trends. And then the national trends, you know, for for this entering 22 class went, um, you know, went down closer to, to historical averages, you know, maybe just a small bit above that 1920 year. And, and again, we, we tracked with that, um, with that national number. Okay. This is a time of year when last year's applicants have either heard that they are accepted or rejected, or maybe they're still on the wait list somewhere and they're thinking, should I apply? What, what suggestions do you have for reapplicants to, to CATS? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that probably a couple things are most important. Number one is don't just reflexively just fire back the same application again. Um, I think you, you know, as an applicant, if you're thinking about reapplying, you really need to step back and talk to whoever it is that's your your trusted advisor, whether it's, 
you know, pre-med advising at your college, whether it's somebody at your post-bac program or whether you're, if you're using a, a professional advisor, um, that you kind of step back and, and really sit down and talk to them and say, what, what were the gaps? You know, where were the holes? Am I really just a victim of the huge number of applicants and I'm ready to go back at this? Or, or is there something that I can kind of shore up um, and present myself with a, with a different and, and kind of enhanced profile in the next cycle? And, and really, do I need more time to fill those gaps? You know, should I, should I think about taking a year? Because by the time you know this information, you know, it's May, June and, and July is here. Um, and so sometimes, you know, taking a year and, and filling those holes makes more sense kind of toward overall success than, than just jumping back into the game. So I think that that's probably a big part of it. And, and a big part of that is kind of that self-awareness kind of introspection piece that, you know, a lot of people get good advice, but, but not everyone hears that good advice and really internalizes that good advice. You know, the advisor says, Hey, you know, you know, I recommend you do this. And they, and then they talk to their friend that's in medical school or their relative that's a, a doctor and they go, Oh no, you should be good. And they kind of don't take the good advice. So kind of stepping back and, and being introspective enough to look at your own application, honestly, and see if there are holes and also to, to take that advice. And then I, I guess the last piece is, as we talked about earlier, really tailoring those secondaries. Could it have been the secondaries? Did you take the time to really make your secondaries right for the schools that you're applying to? You know, did you apply broadly enough? And did you apply to schools whose profile kind of what that school is about and it meets your profile of, of what you look like you're about in your application. I have a follow-up question here. Sure. So let's say a student does step back, looks at their application and says, you know what? I really think it was my MCAT score. So they take this time. Then let's say they even, they wait a year. Maybe they do some, they do some research. Maybe they do some more clinical, they get some more clinical exposure also. And then they say, but my, and they get a higher MCAT score. So they apply, let's say the 2020, 2024 cycle at this point. But the question becomes, gee, my essays weren't a problem. They were good. Should I just submit the same essays? Um, that's a, that's a tough one. I, you know, um, I think that, I think that the answer to that is, is probably no, but they could be very similar essays. Um, and I think they can kind of convey the same point and meaning but I, I think they, that an applicant may run the risk of looking like they were being lazy by not at least kind of thinking it through and maybe rewording some things and, and not necessarily going back to the drawing board and scrapping the outline and the point and the, and the thought. But I think it is worth probably rewriting um, those essays. Or at least some of them to bring them current and show the more recent experience. At least that's always our, our advice. But yeah. Now you're also, actually one last question on medical school admissions, then I want to just touch a little bit on, on emergency medicine. Sure. This, is, this question is from a podcast listener. If you were a pre-med student today, obviously you were once, what is one thing you would be doing to prepare yourself for medical school? Um, yeah, I, I think probably the answer is, is to really, really explore the field, explore medicine 
you know, don't pigeonhole yourself in one experience, in one specialty, no matter how great that is. I think that you really need to to take the time to, to talk to everyone. Talk to anybody who, who is willing to give you their time. Talk to, you know, doctors, whether it's nurses, other healthcare professionals, you know, understand everything you can about what you're getting into. And I, and I think having those conversations leads to opportunities. You know, you, you talk to people and, and there's a connection there and all of a sudden there's a chance to spend some time in someone's office or maybe there's a summer job or a research opportunity or, or something that really can let you know more what you're getting into. I probably the most, not the most common, a frequent comment that I will see from interviewers is, I'm not sure that this person really knows what they're getting into. And so, you know, knowing what you're getting into is big. I mean, medical school is a huge commitment, you know, time, money, you know, sweat, <laughs> tears sometimes. Not a hard work. You know, hopefully not too many. And, and so, um, I would tell people to, to really know what they're getting into and don't be afraid to take some time. You know, if you're done college and you're not sure, like take some time, you know, do something for a year that lets you really know what you're getting into. You don't want to be the person that's already taken out, you know, nearly a quarter million dollars in debt wondering if you should be a doctor. And unfortunately, that does happen on rare occasions. And so that would be my best advice is just do everything you can to know what you're getting into. That is great advice. Now, let's let's turn for a moment to emergency medicine. Okay. And, and you're director of the emergency medicine residency program at Temple. How would writing a personal statement for residency differ from writing one for medical school? Or how should it differ, I should say? I think the biggest difference is, well, the, the most important thing I would say is if anybody's out there that's applying to residency, please don't try to repurpose your medical school personal statement. That's um, what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it can't be a, a rehash of why you became a doctor, can't be kind of a rehash of your kind of here's my list of of activities or achievements, I think it really needs to be a little more refined by the time that you're applying for residency. And, and what you really want to do is tell the, the story of your kind of your journey to that specialty and your understanding, at, you know, of a career in that specialty and your commitment to that specialty and how your kind of experiences and, you know, your attributes and, and your perspectives make you ready to succeed in that specialty in particular. And I, and I think, you know, while some people may be may, may apply to med school thinking what they know what they want to do and they may have some experiences that kind of are driving them in that direction, I think, you know, that personal statement for residency really to a large degree, you know, it may it may kind of go back to your childhood and who you are as a, as a human being and, and some of your formative stuff. But really, a lot of it is going to be about that those formative years kind of since you've arrived at medical school and how that has kind of led you down the path to this specialty and why you're a fit for that specialty. And again, we're back to fit, you know, why you're a fit for that program in particular. 
Thank you. That's a great answer. Sure. What are the critical characteristics that doctors applying to emergency medicine residency programs should have? What are you looking for when you review an application? There's a lot of things, you know, that, that we're looking for. Obviously, some of them, you know, many of them the same that you're looking for when we look for a medical student, but probably some of the some of the specifics for emergency medicine, you know, certainly composure, you know, your ability to keep your head. You know, a big part of emergency medicine is being comfortable in uncomfortable spaces and situations. And that happens every day, often multiple times a day. So you really need to be somebody who can kind of keep keep yourself together through that. Um, certainly resilience. You know, I think that's so important in all of medicine, but, but uh, you know, a big deal in emergency medicine. You need to be able to handle a tough situation in room five and be able to kind of just go like, all right, fresh start in room six, even though, you know, I've just had something that's really kind of, you know, difficult for me right here. I can't take that into the next room with me. You know, I can't, I can't bring my baggage to, you know, to my next patient encounter. You know, humility uh, is a big part of uh, emergency medicine. I, I think emergency physicians work in a, in a space where you rarely, if ever, have all the information that you would like to have to make the decisions that you are going to make. And, and as a result, you're not always going to be right. And you have to understand that. Um, you have to be willing to put your pride aside and say, I don't know. And you have to be willing to ask for help from, you know, specialists or, you know, colleagues um, when you need it. And if you have too much pride to do those things, I think it's bad for the patients. And lastly, I guess I use the term like growth growth mindset, you know, but, uh, but I think it's also, you know, I to love the book. Yeah. Uh, but a, a big piece of it is just like having a, a kind of a personality or a frame of reference that is never judgmental. Um, because if, if, if you are, your patients won't get good care and, and you won't become a better doctor. I mean, the things that bring patients to an emergency room is like just, you know, there's a litany of barriers to accessing healthcare. There's so many holes in the healthcare system and the ER is kind of the, the safety net at the bottom of the funnel and, and patients face those barriers and, and it's really easy, you know, to, to hear people say like, oh, that patient didn't need to go to the emergency room or, you know, this isn't an emergency. And, and for them, it is an emergency and the emergency room is the place where they were able to access the healthcare system. Um, so, so people really need to, to understand some of the kind of barriers to care and some of the issues in the healthcare system and really kind of meet people where they are, you know, is a common term that, that we use um, to do the right thing for our patients and, and just kind of help them get what they need. Thank you very much. What would you have liked me to ask you? Wow, we covered a lot. Um, we did. Yeah, Thank no, I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't have anything in, in particular that I wanted to get out there that, that you didn't ask me about other than that, uh, you know, for the, for the students listening out there, you know, we're excited to meet you. We hope you'll consider the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple. You know, I think that, that we have an amazing training program and we have, two really great and very different um, settings where you can come to school with us here at Temple. So um, please send your applications. We'd, we'd be happy to, to learn more about you.
Thank you very much. Dean Uffberg, I think we're almost out of time. And I know you're very, very busy. I started with that. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where can listeners learn more about Temple Cats School of Medicine? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, it, this was really fun talking. And um, so anybody who wants to learn more about Temple um, can go to medicine.temple.edu. Um, if you want to go specifically to the schools and programs, yeah, medicine.temple.edu slash education, um, if they want to get right to the educational program section. Thank you so much. And we're going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 476 to Temple Cat School of Medicine, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to you listeners. Listener, thank you too for joining us today for our 476th episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please tell your friends. Make sure they don't miss any future shows, be they with deans, admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. And a quick reminder, don't miss the free Med School Essentials video course. Watch it today at medschoolessentials.com. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <music>